Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yo, welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Holmes. It's an actual episode this week of House of L. Later on this week, we will have Sports Adjacent. Looking at the schedule, Maddie Lee's pod will be up this weekend. And the idiots, Roki, Ranji. And Tony, episode three of whatever it is they're doing with their podcast, where they apparently teach you how to be a better friend, all of that will be available to you. I was trying to explain to the audience a couple weeks ago on the pod that, you know, I'm putting together my own group of Avengers. And and in this case, I guess I'm, I'm less Captain America. I always fancy myself as Captain America. But I'm less Captain America and more Nick Fury in this particular, in the family of House of L. And I said, Roki, Raji, and Tony are like the guardians of the galaxy because they're bizarre, effective, but weird. And so that led to a whole thing on the Sports Adjacent podcast of them trying to figure out, because Tony's also a part of that, in in the score like he's the at the score tony was the spider-man to my iron man although i never see myself as iron man i see myself as captain america but that's a pretty good comp that that he was the spider-man to he was the peter parker to my tony stark but that's you know neither here nor there just letting you know there's going to be more episodes out from everyone on house of l this week which is good but this episode in particular is mine and I'm very happy that I got a chance to have a long form conversation with my guest this week I'll get to him in a minute if you're interested in lowering your rate paying off your debt shortening the term of your loan or renovating your home you need to do what I did and call team Hockberg your trusted local lender for a free consultation in May, Team Hockberg helped House of L listeners access $1.9 million of their home's equity and reduce their payments over $35,000 a month. So far this year, Team Hockberg has helped listeners extract over $12 million of their home's equity that saved them over $362 a month. So that's great. What are you waiting for? Your debt isn't going to magically disappear, and the consultation is free. That's right. You can call them. Call Team Hockberg right now. Do it right now. 855-56-DAVID. Wait, don't do it right now. Write it down. Like, write this down. 855-56-DAVID. And then after the episode is over, then you call David. Or you can go to the website, 56david.com. Every house that I've bought 
He's been the lender for it. He gets stuff done really quickly. They do stuff in 21 days. If you got your stuff together, they'll get your stuff together. That should be a slogan. You're welcome, Team Hochberg. 56david.com. Let's talk about this week's guest. The first time I met Anthony Heron, I was working over at Stadium. And I remember him being in the green room like, man, this, this dude is a giant. And he said, hey, you're, you're Lawrence Holmes, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm Anthony Heron. Like, I'm a big fan. And I'm like, of what? <laughs> and it turns out that, that back in the day, Anthony Heron was a P1 listener to the score. So he kind of knew stuff about the show. And it's great. And, you know, we kind of bonded over that. And we got a chance to work together a little bit on the national front because I was working there doing a national show. And you got to see, like, how smart – he was. I'm like, oh, you should come be on the show. And then you know, he's on the show, and then he's on with Dan and Terry, and then it turns out that there was a place for him at the score. Now he's built up this incredible career working not just for us, but NBC. He's doing stuff for them. He does Fox 32. You can check him out during bear season after the games are over, doing their post-game show. He's done all this stuff, and that just scratches the surface of – his career in football. He played in the NFL. He played in the AFL. He ran the AFL. Like, it's it's ridiculous. You'll hear a lot of it in here. He's very driven. He's very smart. Very talented. And I think that he has a wonderful story. The interesting part is that his life parallels mine in a lot of ways, except for, you know, I'm not tall nor handsome, nor was I a star football player. But we do have something in common in that both of our families lived on the south side of Chicago and then moved out to the suburbs. For me, it was Homewood. For him, it was Bolingbrook. But we, inside of this conversation, you'll hear a lot of the parallels that are drawn between us. I think that he's an interesting cat, man. And he's got a lot of cool things to say. I'm glad that he's being given an opportunity to do it. And what he does with the the classic, Gramlin versus Southern, he's on the call for that. And I, I knew that there was an HBCU connection with him, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And in this episode, you find out. Did I forget any of his jobs? Yeah, Big Ten Network. I forgot that because he's a big Iowa guy, which you'll hear us discuss. And if you listen to Anthony Heron on the score, I think that it's also fair to, to, to wonder about him and Matt Bowen. Iowa guys that are doing incredible stuff in football media. So we had Matt Bowen on right before the Super Bowl. So if you go back through the list of episodes, that episode with him is so amazing. I highly recommend it. Listen to that one after you listen to this one. This one was a lot of fun. It was informative. I think you'll get something out of it. And clearly, he's got an audience. People love Anthony Heron. And for good reason. He's fantastic. This is me sitting down with Anthony Heron. House of L Actual. When did you know that you had the skill to go beyond the neighborhood in football? Cause that's a cause that's a thing. Like you know, I remember being a kid, and I'm like, okay, I'm the best at my grammar school. Like, 
okay, I'm the best in the neighborhood. And then I got to HF and I was like, I am no longer the best. (laughs) (laughs) But, But for you to make it all the way to the NFL, when did you have a sense of, I have a future in this? So when I was really young and we were still living in, in Inglewood, I had no idea because I wasn't even allowed to go outside and play. So, I mean, I was just in the house, like, playing spades and bid whiz with a bunch of grown folks who were drinking and smoking around me. Uh, so, really, once we – when we moved to the Burbs and I was literally was like the first time I was allowed to go outside and play consistently, then from there I initially had – more dreams of being Horace Grant than I did of being Richard Dent or Alonzo Spellman or something like that. Um, and it, as it related to football, I was more so like, God, I want to be sweetness, man. I want to be Walter Payton, you know, that kind of thing. So if I would just be out in the field, just, you know, playing ball with some friends or whatever. Yeah. I, I want to catch the ball, I want to run with the ball. Um, so as far as like legitimately even thinking about like college football, possibilities that was really late in high school but as a kid I was always the youngest kid in my class just because of where my birthday lined up in late September I was always the youngest guy and the biggest guy in my class but then you know you know I could always tell like I'm faster than most of the other kids in my class that sort of thing so that I knew there was a level of athleticism there from a, a pretty young age but as far as really thinking about pursuing it at some high level it was, you know what, probably not going to be Jordan. Like, I'm going to be too big to be Mike. But when I started hooping in high school, or I guess really in middle school, started playing on travel team, and I had the prescription goggles going on. So pretty immediately, one of my nicknames was Horace. Okay. Back then, anyway. Yeah, so that part seemed, you know, almost too obvious to, to pass up was, all right, I would be Horace, or maybe I would be Dennis Rodman, be the hustle man, be the defensive guy, block some shots, get some boards. Didn't really have much handle. Didn't really have a J. So you know what? That that actually worked out where I could tell early on that if it was going to be a hoop game, and at first I thought, because my dad's 6'6", six, six, my dad's much taller than me even, so I thought maybe, we always thought when I was young, I would be like, you know, 6'8", six, 6'10". Six, so hoop game was really what I was initially thinking, all right, I'm going to play the NBA. And then at a certain point, I stopped growing like my sophomore year in high school, I was the height I am now. I stopped growing vertically and then started to kind of fill out a little bit more and really started attacking football a little bit more. I said, oh, well, all right, I guess this football thing might work out. So I would be, uh, you know, see if I can play for the Bears one day. So so once you make that determination, like you still play ball, though, like you still play basketball, right? Yeah, my whole time in high school, I played three sports. I, I did football, basketball, and track. So Bolingbrook, you know, we always kind of fashioned ourselves as a football factory anyway. So it was kind of like season by season, each sport would be taken a little less seriously. But like at BHS, man, football was was where it was at. And we, we had a coach named Phil Acton. He was the Silver Fox. And he was just super rigid, very old school with his playbook and everything else. But, you know, he, he took no prisoners. And he was always a guy who didn't mind calling outside your name, but then at the same time, you know, he'd love you up and slap you on the butt when you needed that too. Um, So football season was, that was like work. That was a job. And then basketball season, we were always competitive, 
um, but didn't take it nearly as seriously as football because basically just a bunch of football guys out there hooping. And then by the time we got to track season, Bolenberg was always a really fast high school. So we had a bunch of great sprinters. And I was really one of the first, you know, kind of state competitive level throwers that we had at the school. So I was competitive in the shot and disc, but like I didn't have a throwing coach or anything. Like there was a teacher who'd come around and help us out a little bit. But, you know, like every season just progressively was a little a little less serious as far as what we did as athletes. But, you know, we, we always, I've, and I tell this to parents on a consistent basis, man, whether I'm going out speaking somewhere or doing camps or whatever, I try to remind people just to let their kids be well-rounded athletes because all this specialization at a young age that people try to do now where, you know, I, I want my 12-year-old to be a left-handed middle reliever when he grows up and just... Just let him be an athlete. And, and at whatever point, whether it's in elementary school, middle school, high school, and you start to get a sense for, for which sport is best, then still just allow them to keep pursuing it if they want to. Like, all right, if they're not, if they're not enjoying basketball anymore, they, they only love baseball or they only love football or something, I don't think you need to force them. But if they're enjoying other sports, and especially if they're thriving in multiple sports, let them do it their entire time because the, the scholarship opportunities are going to be there if that's really what your focus is. So I'm, I'm so happy that that, that that was my path. And part of that was just because I was, you know, be, like between being young for my grade and not necessarily having at a young age, cause we, you know, we moved from the city to the burbs and I'm still at that point, I'm developing friends and friendships and relationships. I'm like the only, only black kid in my class for a while when I went from the city to the burbs and then suddenly I was in, in the honors program and meeting, really meeting white people and having white friends for the first time. There's all this like social stuff that was going on for me and all these mental and emotional things just in development. So for me, really truly in an organized fashion becoming a high level athlete happened very late in high school for me. I was just, I was a big athletic guy, but really thriving in organized sports it didn't happen until late in high school. So I wasn't one of these guys who was a, a high level recruit early on or who knew for sure I was going to get college scholarships like I was talking about earlier, but being able to just pursue all three sports and all three seasons was, was something I, you know, I, I'm confident that benefits me to this day. And being in band, like I, I did the marching band and the jazz band and the, the symphonic winds, classical, I, I did band my entire time in high school too. So just being well-rounded, I, I try to urge every time I get an opportunity to talk to kids, to talk to their parents, being well-rounded will, will give them far more opportunities than trying to say, here's that one thing that you need to try to be great at and just see if we can ride that till the wheels fall off. You, if you burn out, you're, you're not going to pursue it as, as well and at as high level. And even if you don't burn out, you just limit your options and limit the, the possibilities that you will continue to be well-rounded mentally and physically and emotionally just because you've kind of, you know, pigeonholed yourself into that one thing at a really young age. I had a similar cultural experience to yours where, you know, I grew up in Roseland. We, we lived in Roseland until I was 14. My brother had gone to, to Mendel High School over on the south side on 111th Street. It closed down the year before I graduated <laughs> eighth grade. So then it became, you know, my parents deciding, do we stay in the city and send Lawrence to Brother Rice? Does he go to Quigley? Does he go to Mount Carmel? Or do we move? They chose to move out to Homewood, and it was a cultural shock for me. I, I went to a school that had the only white people that I knew were the priest. Like, that was it. 
Uh. Everyone else, like including I, I joke about this, Ed Howard, the draft pick for the Cubs, his uncle and I grew up together. Like I know his whole family. Like it's so weird, like how small like black Chicago actually is. Right. But to then end up in Homewood, which now is fairly well integrated, but back then it was a shock for me, and I can only imagine what Bolingbrook was like <laughs> back in, in that era of, of the, the, the late 80s, early 90s. So what was it like to go from the south side out to Bolingbrook? I mean, culture shock only begins to describe it because in, in the environment I was in at, at a really young age where – you know, the neighborhood we were in in Inglewood, like 7010 South Carpenter, it was, you know, my family took our safety seriously as kids, but then, you know, we knew the, the adults, like my parents and grandparents, uncles and aunts, and, you know, a bunch of us kind of piled up in in one, you know, fairly smallish house. Like, we'll still joke about it to this day. If we go back and drive through the old neighborhood and see that house now, it's like, man, how are we fitting 12 to, like, on the holidays, maybe upwards of 20 people in this house that just felt minuscule that seemed big at the time because so many people were in it but just is minuscule in size by comparison to the amount of folks that we had in there but that was just my world was sort of confined to that we had it there was a bus went to a catholic school that's now closed down saint francis de paula on the south side there was a catholic school we went to uh, me and my siblings when, when we were young and actually kevin cross uh kevin actually went to the went to the same school now kevin's older than me older than us but he went to the same exact school, St. Francis. And at the time, it, you know, that was the best school available in, in that sure. area of the city. And Mr. Gilly's bus would come pick us up right there at the front door, go down the stairs, go off the porch and get on the bus. And then once school was over, he'd drop us off right there, like in front of each individual house. It wasn't like go down to the corner and catch the bus or something like that. Nope, you got picked up and dropped off right in front of your door. But that was really the extent of my interaction with, with the outside world was Mr. Gilly's bus. And then anytime like a, a grown up would come outside, then all right, we can go get off the porch, play directly there in front of the house. So once we got to the burbs and there were people I was interacting with beyond my family, there was a, eventually as it developed a comfort which just allowed me to go around the corner and go hang out with friends by myself. You know, being around people who, who talk differently, who dress differently, being around kids with very different backgrounds and, and ways that they interacted with each other, with their families, and just kind of seeing that dynamic for the first time. It's it wild. Was, yeah. Yeah. It really is. Just how different certain dynamics can be in families. And, you know, some positive, some negative, or, or what have you, but just different. And You can say it. You had never seen a kid yell at their parents until you moved oh, yeah. to Bolingbrook. <laughs> Because that's how it was with me. I was meeting these kids from Flossmore, and I'm like, y'all just yell at your parents? like, and they talking don't... all kinds of way to their parents. Like, really? You get down like that? And huh? they okay. don't punch you two tomorrow? Like, I can't <laughs> even imagine. Like, I can't. I, I always joke because you know, be, me and Ben Bradley from, from Channel 9 were classmates. Like, we didn't just go okay. to HF. Like, we were taking classes together, working in radio together. So we've been friends for 30 years, me and him. Mm. And I remember going to his house the first time and being like, what? Like, what? <laughs> he had he had a sliding door. I'll never forget this. He had a sliding door in his bedroom that led to the pond 
that the house sat on. <laughs> and I was just like, this is real life? Like, you live here? Like, we we both love, along with loving radio and TV, we both love Star Trek. So I remember okay. going over there when Star Trek DS9 started. And and just being like, what? Like, like, like come <laughs> on, man. Like, like, for real? Like, you live in this place and... It's very much like I would go like go through the list of people that I went to high school with, and it's amazing. Like, obviously Ben Bradley, right? I also was in high school with the Darvins of Darvin okay. Furniture. Okay. And I was in high school with Little the Duchess Swaz. So you like I was classma- classmates with Ashley Duchess Swaz. And I'm All like, right. oh, there's real money out here. Like, <laughs> like, it's like y'all are not fronting. Like, these are houses. These are estates that are out right. here. And I'm like, and I go back to our house, and our house is fine. Like, it's, it's a great little uh-huh. house. And, and you go, Wow, what did y'all do to me? Where why'd y'all send me out here with all these rich people? They got cars and they don't have driver's licenses. Just <laughs> got wheels waiting on them. Just waiting for them to turn yeah. 16. It's it's, right. it's amazing. Did did you enjoy the experience of living in Bolingbrook? I did, man, a lot. And especially just as I got older and Bolingbrook continued to evolve and just the the way that it, it's such a melting pot. And, and became that really quickly and was already becoming that, like, you know, the whole great migration thing with so many of, of our families, like people from, from yours and my background, like family that moved from the South, came and basically like settled in Chicago to find work and then began to branch out from the city itself and get into the burbs from there. And so there was a lot of people in the burbs and specifically in Bolingbrook with a, a similar experience. And initially when my family moved to the brook, it was still a lot of cornfields and wasn't really necessarily that developed yet. And then just kind of like every five years or so, it just felt like it got bigger and more diverse over and over again. And, you know, at this point, yeah, there's no doubt Bolingbrook is an extremely diverse town at this point for me with my experience where like I always received like positive affirmation from, from my parents and from family members around me. And so I, you know, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't necessarily ever any doubt that I was like intelligent as a kid or anything like that. But then at the same time, going from St. Francis, which was supposed to be like a quality Catholic school in South Chicago, but then going to just some random public school in Brolinbrook, I was like four reading levels behind the kids in my class, which certainly caught my parents off guard. And I didn't, I didn't really know what to do with that either. But then within a year, that first year of being in the brook where you know, I didn't have any friends at first anyway, so I'm just I'm at home, still kind of in the house a lot, and just kind of doing schoolwork and locked in on that. And then a year later, I go from being reading four reading levels behind to being in the challenge program the following year. It's like, oh, okay, so I am I am book smart, you know, like this, with some of these nicknames like brain and stuff like that. Like, oh, it, it makes sense. So I began to thrive in the classroom, and then socially, a lot of that kind of came along also there's things that I look back on now that didn't necessarily touch me in the same way then. Like once I was the only black kid in my class for the entire time in middle school and going early into high school where, you know, if it was like, okay, we're out at recess and, you know, everybody's playing tag or they just come up with a game like, all right, who's the monster? 
I was always the monster, you know, not only was I the big kid, but I was the different one. I was the black kid. And so, you know, just somewhere, somehow, it just always turned out that Anthony was the monster that everybody needed to run away from. And so there were things like that, that they certainly, I've noticed them, but didn't notice them with kind of the, the deep sensibility that you can look back on it now as an adult. But there would be times where like, you know, I'm running around or I chase somebody or I tag somebody or they chase me because like I'm the monster. So they got the pitchforks and, you know, they're like chasing me around. And I get, you know, every once in a while, I like, just kind of take a break out of breath and I kind of look around the classmates like, so how come I always got to be the monster? It's like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're the biggest one or whatever. And then, you know, just kind of keep rolling with it because you're a kid and don't necessarily think about it at that deeper level. But I certainly have that memory and that realization of what that was at that time or the way that teachers like there were multiple times while I was uh, still in the honors program where my parents had to come to the school and have meetings with with my teacher with administrators for just things that I like, come home and just say certain things that a teacher might have said to me or things the teacher would like report back that they were framing as some sort of an issue with my behavior and my folks would go to the school like so is he the only one doing this? Are there other kids in the class that for, for some reason are being bothered by this? And there was never a quality explanation for it. So the administrators would have to like admonish my teacher in front of me and in front of my parents for singling me out for these unforeseen, you know, sort of reasons. And so there's things like that within my childhood in Bolingbrook that I don't necessarily, I certainly don't think they scarred me. But there, there are things that I experienced that I didn't necessarily, you know, I was just oblivious to as a child that I look back on and recognize that just being this sort of very, very, you know, sort of deep minority, like literally the only black kid in my class for so many years of my early scholastic experience in the suburbs, I still think in a lot of ways has, has maybe helped me to thrive in, in scenarios and environments where, where I stick out like a sore thumb, but then also, you know, have, have been ways that, that have I suppose sharpened my my gaze on how folks interact with people, how folks treat you know those who are different from them? It's so weird how parallel our experiences were, because I, I had the I was at Saint Thaddeus over on Ninety Fifth mm. Street, and when I was in seventh and eighth grade, they had me take what were called early involvement classes at Harlan High School. Okay, so I spent two years taking English one and two. At the high school level, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, my father is also an English professor, okay? My mom's a teacher. So I've got all this stuff, and I get over to HF, and they made it very clear that my experience in the city was inferior to <laughs> the experience that I was going to have at HF. But, you know, they, they gave me all the, the entry exam type stuff, and I was placed in – I was placed in – in regular English, like regular English one. And my mom was like, he's already taken this. And they were like, but he hasn't taken it. Yeah, right. And, right. He and took it in the city, though. Right. He took it in a CPS school. Luckily, I had an English teacher who recognized really quickly that I wasn't supposed to be in her class. <laughs> and and shout out to Miss Piccola. Shout out to Miss Pignati. They both were like instrumental in going to the guidance counselor who had kind of told me, no, nah, you don't belong in honors classes because of where you came from. And I remember Mrs. Piccola, after our first assignment, her going, you don't belong here. 
So I want you to go back to you. And I was like, no, no, I had already told this dude. And <laughs> we, we did that. We had that talk. And I, yeah, that's yeah. how I ended up here. And she goes, okay. And then she pulled out a pad and wrote a note. And she said, I will see you six period in honors English one. And it was a very <laughs> validating moment to, yeah. to, to be able to, to be like people actually looking out for you and then feeling like you were seen and heard in situations where someone's default setting was, you don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> I had a teacher in high school, my English teacher in high school, it's kind of, you know, I don't know, English teachers, English majors, there's obviously, I think there's just a different way that we tend to just interact with the world at large. But my English teacher, one of my English teachers in high school, a guy named John Rohan, well, his name is actually pronounced John Rowan, but we all just call him Mr. Rohan. So he just, he almost he just, just dealt with like, it. Yeah, just changed the pronunciation of his last name. I mean, I invited him out to my wedding and everything years later. But he and I developed a relationship that was almost like, kind of like the Mitch album book, Tuesdays with Maury, yeah. where there was just this influence in his life that he would just go and have all these amazing conversations with. And so for me, like whenever I wasn't racing off to a practice or racing off to some event at the end of the school day, or frankly, sometimes just like in the middle of his class, I would just go and sit down with Mr. Rohan and we'd just chop it up. Just an older white guy, kind of had a hippie sort of vibe to him, but he was, he was like the first, he's the first old white guy I can think of that when I was still young, would just like kind of talk to me like an adult, kind of talk to me as a peer, essentially. And we would have the, just these real discussions about, about life, about interaction, about the, the male dynamic, about the way society views men in general, views black men, you know, just things that would go on in the high school, relationships, everything, man. We would talk about everything under the sun. And he was just, he was, you know, like every school has the cool teacher. He sure. was the cool teacher at BHS. But even beyond just him, his willingness to be casual with students or crack jokes here and there, like he and I developed kind of a deeper bond just because we would go and chop it up forever and just sit there, just lose track of time, just kind of talking about life in general. So he's he's that guy for me. Like, he's my Maury of, of Tuesdays with Maury. He's my uh, my Miss Spicola where, you know, you just, you just had a certain vibe with individuals who would see something in you and beyond just then, you know, perhaps thinking something was, was perhaps more exceptional about you, but just have a relationship that's there where you can communicate on a level that, that really affected me in a positive way. Like, my, you know, the, the way I talk, the way I communicate, the way I can orate at certain points, you know, the bulk of that comes from my folks and from my dad and the way he can kind of, you know, command a room with his intellect and his vocab and all that kind of stuff. But probably the... Uh, the, the willingness to to see the humanity in people and recognizing that that people like authority figures can see the humanity in me, John Rohan was definitely a big influence on that for me. That's a really cool thing to to have when you have adults that are willing to do that for for children and probably even understanding that mm -hmm. you're a fish out of water, you know, like that sort yeah. of thing, and and reaching out a hand. It's a big deal to children. I I think about Miss Picola. She was so small, like she was. This little feisty woman, like just like not to be trifled with. And I knew as soon as she pulled that pad out that there was going to be no more problems for me when it came to what my classes looked like for her. But So for football, I want to go back to football for a second. So you're playing basketball, you're doing track, you're in football, and your body type now says – yeah, maybe if you had some actual coaching, you could have taken the discus <laughs> and, and the shot put to a different level. But you've actually got the coaching in football. 
when does the light click on? Is there a moment, a game when you're like, oh, snap, like I actually might get my college paid for because I can go get the quarterback? There were, they're still at this point, man, even after everything I've, I suppose, like accomplished in, in the sport. But, you know, I'm still looking to talk to anybody. Like I'm you know, looking to have Kurt Warner on the, on the radio show this week. You talk to anybody who's achieved anything, and there's still going to be those, those periods in their, their path where you look back at it and say, oh, I wonder if that would have gone a little bit differently. And so, you know, it's certainly no different for me. Where I think back to like the early point of my high school career where I never had pads on before being a freshman in high school, because either, you know, while we were in the city, certainly wasn't allowed to do any of that. But even once we got to the Burbs, first sport I played in an organized setting was soccer. So I was too big to play youth football. And then I played basketball kind of towards the end of middle school on some travel teams. So then I never had football pads on before high school. So, yeah, I wasn't like immediately, you know, varsity level as a freshman. But yeah, for a freshman football player, started on both sides, played well sophomore year was I, I remember there was we had like the scrimmage the sophomore team scrimmaging against the varsity team and it was known that like all right if you show out in this scrimmage this is going to be your chance to get pulled up to varsity and I mean you know you know Bolenberg like we got our D1 athletes coming out every year it's no joke there but um for, somehow my mouthpiece disappeared before the varsity scrimmage, like right beforehand we finish up warm-ups you know finding the helmet putting the helmet back on I don't know I don't remember for sure if it was like I put it, you know, you can kind of put it right there and kind of squeeze it within the face mask somewhere or what. But my face mask was just, or my, my mouthpiece was just gone. So they didn't let me scrimmage against the varsity going into that, that day. And so I, I didn't get pulled up until like really late in my sophomore year. So I wasn't even a guy who really played varsity early in high school. So once I did finally get to varsity, like, you know, kind of for the end of the regular season in the playoffs, they pulled me up to varsity at the end of my sophomore year. But as far as like, all right, I'm going to start on varsity. I didn't even start on defense my junior year in high school. I started on offense and special teams. And you know, I mentioned Phil Acton earlier on. He's a guy who, you know, suffered no fools, didn't mess around with people, you know, would be like a real kind of harsh demeanor at times as a coach. And basically their issue with me was that they felt like I devoted more more energy more urgency to to defense so essentially as a punishment they didn't let me start on defense now, i still played defense and obviously played at a level where i should have been starting on defense but they started me on offense because they wanted me to to really you know commit to both sides of the ball and they knew i loved defense more so i didn't start on defense my junior year i only started on offense basically then trying to prove the point that yeah you have to commit to offense too and then we'll let you start on defense what position were and, you playing on offense uh, offensive tackle okay you know a little bit of guard here and there too but um you know more tackle than anything and then my senior year you know starting both ways and all special teams and all that but the the experience of not starting on defense my junior year, which of course, as we know at this point, I get a college scholarship to play D-line, play defensive line in the NFL and all those things. I still look back at that and kind of smirk a little bit and scoff at that notion a little bit. And, you know, I don't think at this point I can look back at it and say they weren't, they weren't completely like devoid of reality. Like, yes, I, I played harder on defense than I did on offense, but the notion that for some reason that means I should not start or I should not play defense. And somehow that was going to like starting this little guy, what was his name? Billy, Billy Young, who was, you know, maybe half your size. And so starting him on the defensive line instead oh of starting God. me 
for for some reason. And you know, he's a tough guy, good guy, whatever. But you know, I mean, come on, let's let's get real here. But you know, they made the determination that they would start him instead of starting me in my junior year uh, on defense. And you know, had all kinds of little rude nicknames like soft serve and stuff like that. They'd say just to like try to try to tick me off and see if they could get a little bit more out of me or whatever to get me play with an edge. So there were there were moments like that that I look back on now where I was saying, you know, how like at a younger age, the positive affirmation that you get from the family and all that. But there will certainly be those other things, those other sort of competing forces where you know maybe that that figure in your life, that authority figure is trying to drive you. And I mean, certainly in a football setting, we know how that can get sometimes uh, the testosterone associated with that. So I, I would say like from, from the type, like the intensity of coaching that I got at Bowenbury High School, there weren't very many settings. Like Charles Haley is probably the only coach who, who like, you know, could like lord over you uh, to the extent that I really felt like I had to deal with in high school. Like none of the intensity in college, none of the other NFL teams, there was nothing that, that I experienced just from like the intensity of the coaching that compared with what the Bolingbroke High School experience was. And I think there's some positive to that because then you go to all these other levels so you can kind of deal with a lot. But then there's also just thinking about like how that makes you feel in the infancy of your development as an athlete and as a young person and everything like that. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the way it was done was, was all wrong because there are going to be harsh things in the world and there are going to be these harsh interactions that you have with authority figures. I suppose it's, there's no way to know for sure how differently things would have turned out, but that's one of those things that stands out to me from my high school career between the losing of the mouthpiece. So I didn't get to like prove myself against the varsity early in my sophomore year. And the fact that I didn't even start my first year on varsity, my first full season on varsity, I didn't even start on the D line. I was an NFL defensive line. I didn't even start until my senior year on varsity. That's crazy. Like the whole thing is crazy. Let's play the sliding door game for a second. Where did you almost go for college? Almost went to Michigan State. That was the biggest almost. Nick Saban was at Michigan State at the time and basically came down to Nick Saban, the Michigan State Spartans, and their AstroTurf versus Hayden Fry, Brett Bielema, the Iowa Hawkeyes, and the grass field and Kinnick Stadium. And my sister was actually at Michigan State already. So like she was a student there and you know we, we had been to East Lansing a few times and it, I, either one felt like it would have been a good fit, but Iowa just felt like the, the best fit. It felt like the right fit, you know, by comparison to where the two programs were. You can make some comparisons. They were in similar spaces where both, you know, had done some winning but hadn't like been all the way over the top. So, I mean, I, I had offers from Michigan, from Nebraska, from Wisconsin. I, t- I took visits to, well, I took visits to, to Michigan um, and, and I didn't take an official visit to Nebraska. Um, and uh, I remember the first time that I legitimately like really got excited because we, we weren't a college sports household. I mean, you know, it's Chicago. We're not really a college sports city anyway. So I didn't grow up really rooting for any college football mm-hmm. program in particular, but I definitely knew what Nebraska football was there in the mid to late nineties. And so when Tom Osborne called me to offer me a scholarship, that was like the first time I had a bunch of scholarship offers by that point. When Tom Osborne called me, we talked about like the weather and his, you know, his upbringing and stuff. We're like super boring conversation, but it's Tom Osborne. So I was riveted just because it's him and he offers me the scholarship and we hang up. That's the first time I was just like geeked when I got off the phone with the coach. I'm like, mom, I ran upstairs like, man, guess who that just was on the phone? Like, who was it? Tom Osborne. 
I'm waiting for a reaction. She has no idea who Tom Osborne is. Like, man, it's Nebraska. They won back-to-back national championships. He just offered me a scholarship, blah, 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 whoop de whoop It's like, oh, okay, that's great. But that was like my first recollection of really being excited from a conversation from one of the offers I got from a football coach because of like the status that Nebraska had a quarter century ago. Now things are obviously different with where they're at as a program now. But at that point, that was the pinnacle of college football was Nebraska. But that wasn't what I was looking for. Like, I wasn't looking for Nebraska or Michigan where you're, like, definitively in that national championship conversation on an annual basis. I was looking for Michigan State and Iowa, like, somewhere where I felt like, yeah, I'm I'm confident I'm going to win when I go here, but I want to be a part of that final push, like, to take things to another level. Just after evaluating a bunch of stuff, that felt more important to me. That felt more like my vibe that I wanted, more so than just being a part of, like, the, the championship factory. What was your favorite part about being in Iowa City? It was, it's, it's the quintessential college town. And the more and more that I took different visits and evaluated different things, and that was really one of, you know, playing on AstroTurf, that was a big knock for me for Michigan State because I was already having some knee problems even at that point in high school. And, you know, East Lansing is still kind of an urban setting with a college, you know, university in it. Whereas Iowa City, is there's Iowa City and then there's farm country. And it was just, it's the college town vibe uh, within the Big Ten footprint. And I I figured out that that's what I'm looking for. Like, I want to be with a program that's the only show in town. I want to be with a program that has this this rabid, passionate, fanatical, almost kind of fan base to it uh, in the midst of a setting where where that's kind of the, the only thing that folks, to some extent, the main thing that folks really care about as far as their passions outside their, their family and their religion. And so, you know, for me, that was probably, that, that stands out to me because kind of, you know, most of the athletes who end up going to Iowa, you know, my, my wife, not excluded, like everybody was kind of looking for something like that. Like you wanted to be somewhere that felt you know, remote without feeling like you're on Mars. And, that, you know, Iowa City, just a few hours away from being able to get to a bunch of stuff. And it's it's a really nice, gorgeous campus. And, you know, half the campus is from Chicago. So that felt, the Chicago area. So that felt comfortable too. And, you know, it's just athletics at Iowa is really important. And the people there on campus are, for the most part, really, really cool. So that, that environment that I was hoping I would get when I got there, I, it pretty much lived up to it. That's... That's great to hear because sometimes it doesn't like people mm-hmm. like they end up playing for a while and they're like, this wasn't what I wanted. So outside of the football, the fact that it it gave you kind of what you needed, I think, is a pretty a pretty cool thing. So when did when did the NFL become a possibility? So that at that point, like by the time I was on my way to Iowa, the NFL was at least a more realistic inkling in my brain. But even at that point, like I didn't show up at Iowa expecting to play as a true freshman. You know, I was just, I was this late bloomer in high school. And then suddenly, like basically during my senior year, once it's like, all right, you know, start on defense too. So it goes from where I got a few offers, like some Mac schools and then some one double A schools going into my senior year. And then, you know, I'm just lighting it up during my senior season. And then there's just offers pouring in from everywhere. And the way that folks are recruiting me just changes so much at that point. And so during my senior year, and, you know, frankly, I'm like maturing a lot physically at that point too. I was 
I was 16 years old by my senior year of high school. And I, I didn't even start lifting weights until my junior year in high school. So for me, I, there was just so much physical and emotional development at that point. But yeah, my senior year, there, there weren't a lot of people in the state who could mess with me at, at that point. And so on my way to Iowa, I'm like, yeah, maybe I can develop into some long shot NFL guy at some point. And I show up there on campus and I realized that, wow, because I, I just, I didn't know how different my potential was physically until so late in high school. And then I get to college and we start going through training camp and really just even when I first got to campus, because we lift a lot of weights at Bolingbrook, but I didn't do it until the end of the time there. I get on campus in Iowa and you know, I'm like, all right, my muscles are just as big as a lot of these guys already. And I'm in the weight room and I'm, I'm, you know, moving weight just like a lot of these other guys out here. And I'm, you know, just turning 17 years old at this point. So that was, that was eye-opening for me initially just to see like, all right, so a lot of these guys have beards and mustaches and I don't even have peach fuzz yet <laughs> on my face, but I, I can compete at this level, even though I haven't necessarily been taught the skills of the game yet. And then they said, yeah, we, we want to put you on the field right away. I said, no, I'm good. Well, let's not do that. And it took a lot of convincing, you know, throughout most of the preseason. And then finally, between Brett Bielema, because he and I developed, a, he was the main guy who recruited me to Iowa, between Bielema and a guy named Bobby Elliott, who's the defensive coordinator at that time, who was really supposed to be the guy who took over for Hayden Fry, except uh, Bobby Elliott ended up developing this rare type of, of blood cancer. Um, and so after my sophomore year, where Hayden Fry retires, he was actually dealing with a bout of cancer that we didn't know about, and Bobby Elliott, like it came to the point where he got so sickly by the end of the season, my sophomore year, that they didn't have any choice but to tell us that Coach E uh, was was battling in, in a deep bout with cancer, and he damn near died from it, and it eventually did, uh, unfortunately, pass just a few years ago after beating cancer and going back to coaching, but Brett Bielema and Bobby Elliott, they just had several conversations with me, like, because I posed the question, like, would I be playing if I was at Nebraska or Michigan, or is, is this just because our D linemen are good? Like, why are you trying to rush me onto the field? Basically, like, you know, I'm asking them, you know, like the tough questions. Like, no, if you were anywhere, they would be aching to get you on the field right now. Like, you're ready for this. But in my mind, that wasn't the lens I saw myself in yet, because this was all essentially over the course of less than a year, just recognizing, like, all right, I'm not necessarily kind of just, you know, just beyond some of the other athletes around me in high school, like, no, I'm, you know, I'm fortunately at a, at a, a level, I suppose at an elite level. And that didn't necessarily change once I got to college. Like I stood out amongst the crowd there too, fortunately. So yeah, they, they convinced me to play as a 17 year old true freshman. So I go out there and get smacked around by Michigan and Ohio <laughs> state when I'm out there, you know, trying to face double teams and I'm 230 pounds. Like that didn't, you know, held my own eventually, but yeah, there was some hard lessons learned that freshman year. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime. 
feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. So, so you make it through that, you're moving in the right direction, you're catching people's attention. When do you allow yourself to believe maybe I could make it like maybe maybe everyone's been right about this and I can go beyond just getting my college paid for? Um, probably about about a month into my freshman year, something like that, like after after I kind of really took a good look at it, recognized, OK, this is I, maybe I'm a little different even amongst these big 10 athletes and these Iowa athletes who you know in your mind you're growing up and kind of picturing the possibilities of this or that you put certain things on a pedestal rightfully so but then you recognize like oh I belong here and not only do I belong but I could potentially thrive here and uh so yeah I mean not too long into my freshman year it gets to the point where I'm now really like feeling myself at that point I walk around in sunglasses everywhere I'm sitting sitting in the the auditorium during a a lecture with a few hundred people in the room got like the newspaper I'm like I got this man I'm about to about to go to the league in a couple years I'm gonna retire to my yacht somewhere I'm not worried about all this you know this scholastic stuff you know so you just kind of doing enough to to get by essentially but yeah I would say you know it was fairly early in college where I, I really did get a true sense that I would you know I would definitely have an opportunity at the NFL I mean and you know from enough of the coaches you know kind of telling me that too that uh, I was I was convinced fairly quickly that 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 was at least going to be an opportunity for me um and then you get through like I'm talking about earlier like even in high school there's certain things where you wonder what, what would have been different if this would have been a little different so like I mentioned Bobby Elliott doesn't take over for Hayden Fry that was all the negative recruiting about Iowa like the negative recruiting against Michigan State when folks knew they were one of my finalists was Nick Saban's not going to be there your whole career. He's going to go back to the NFL. He's an NFL guy. So he wasn't there my entire time in school. He left after a couple of years, but he went to LSU. He didn't go back to the NFL yet. Hayden Fry, as a lot of folks were, were warning me during recruiting, he's very old. He's in his seventies now. He's not going to be there your whole career, but that was part of what, uh, what Bielema kind of pitched to me. Essentially is like, Hayden's going to be here. Coach Fry's going to be here. He's not going anywhere, but if he's not, this Bobby Elliott guy is going to be the one to take over. And then, you know, me and Coach E really developed a, a good rapport, and he just had this life force about him. It was just fun to be around. His defensive scheme was really fun and attacking. We're stemming around and penetrating here, and there's just like a play playmaking kind of, uh, you know, approach that he had for the front seven on defense. So he doesn't take over because he's definitely ill at that point. So then – this other guy, Kirk Ferentz, who none of us, you know, basically on the team at that point have heard of, he ends up taking over after, you know, for me, I'm whatever I'm in, I guess I'm 18 at that point, and I'm in the room. It's me, Matt Bowen, a couple of other returning starters after my sophomore year and Bo's junior year, and we're in the room with the athletic director, Bob Bowlesby, who went on to be the AD at Stanford and is now the Big 12 commissioner. We're sitting there in the room, just a handful of us with Bob Bowlesby, and Bowlesby's asking us, like, so uh, what do you think 
the program needs? And what, what are some of the, the principles that you think I should be looking for in your next football coach? Now, maybe it was lip service, maybe he couldn't care less, you know, what, what we were saying to him at that point, but it did feel, you could feel the gravity of it, at least if nothing else, where, you know, this is going to shape the direction of Iowa football for years to come, perhaps for decades to come. We didn't know Kirk was still going to be there 20-something years later, but the AD is sitting down with us asking our thoughts on, on what he should be looking for in that hire, um, which which was a cool experience, and it was cool of him to be willing to do that with a few of us, regardless of if he actually took us seriously with some of the feedback we gave him anyway. So, you know, in whatever way that leads to where just Kirk Ferentz is eventually hired, it's not Bob Stoops, who most people assumed was going to be the hire at that point, a fellow Hawkeye, and a former Hawkeye. So Kirk takes over, brings in a completely different scheme on defense. I got to gain a bunch of weight. I got a two-gap and all this kind of stuff that doesn't lead to me sacking the quarterback or making tackles in the backfield. So that was a big adjustment and took a really big toll on me physically. My back is all jacked up. My knees are all jacked up worse at that point. So it was a very different end of my career than what I was sort of anticipating would develop and emerge because there's the coaching change and because the scheme is different than I anticipated and frankly doesn't suit what I've been doing up to that point. Now today, maybe I would have like if this was happening nowadays, maybe I would have given stronger consideration like the transfer portal or something like mm. that. And when like players weren't allowed to transfer back then, but it, it was not in vogue and you had to lose a year. And I loved Iowa City, regardless of the struggles the program had at that point. So I never considered transferring, but you know, for what ended up becoming of, of my last couple of seasons where I played well, I was graded out well on film and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't a scheme at that point early in Kirk's time. And they made some adjustments after those first few years, but it wasn't a scheme suited for defensive linemen to make plays. And, uh, and that showed itself, you know, where we all like did really well on film and everybody complimented our D line, the opponents hated playing us, but we weren't making any plays in the backfield. So they, you know, continued to tweak and adjust, you know, after those first few seasons, but you know, that was the type of thing that you know, I do wonder, like, what if Bobby Elliott would have taken over and how differently would my career have ended? What kind of numbers would I put up and those types of things? I'm glad that you brought up Matt Bowen because I was going to ask you something about him. I think I've been lucky to have both of you as analysts on mm -hmm. my radio show. And I think that there are similarities to the way that you both do it. And I can't figure out if there are similarities because you have a similar football background are there similarities because you're essentially from the same area? I can't figure it out, but you both, you both are able to take the complicated and make it simple. You, you can, both of you can talk. If, 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 if it were a room full of football people, you both would hold your own in, in, in a room full of football people. But I found that both of you have the ability, and I say to anyone, they should go back and listen to the Matt Bowen episode of House of L2. It was really, really good. How do you think you developed your style of being able to take some of the things that seem mysterious to those that didn't play at a high level and distill it down so that we can understand it? I mean, to... To have a command of vocabulary is, is obviously a part of that. But even for, like I've told you how crazy Charles Haley was as a coach, and to some extent probably still is today, as a diagnosed bipolar, but even for someone like Charles, who literally could not at times control the, the manic sort of adjustments in his demeanor and his, his mentality, but he loved to teach D-line play, and he could do it 
with such intricacy and detail that it made him a great teacher. He was not a great coach because of some of these other emotional issues that, that he suffered from, but he could teach D-Lion like no other. And I think myself and Bo, I think we both have that, that a big part of our personality is just a love of teaching. So that can come across just in him still at this point, like loving to coach high school football. And for me, loving in the years I coached arena football, considering like I always describe myself as a football teacher and now as a broadcaster, I feel like that's, that's just, that's a part of my gig where I teach, I teach sports. I, I teach specifically as a coach. I've taught football. And when I'm on the air, I, I want people to be able to learn from, from what I'm delivering and whether it's calling a game, whether it's doing a studio show, whether it's being on the radio, I certainly feel like I understand the, the genre at a, at a high level. And there's, there's knowledge that I have that I really do just enjoy teaching people. And I think some people, you know, can, can very successfully handle, handle this, this industry in a different way where perhaps it is more about your opinion and your personality and whether it is because you can, you can find a way to always have a, a nuanced debate on a, on a topic that even if you're agreeing with the person you're discussing it with, you can really drive that point home in a very definitive and opinionated manner. Or if you're somebody who's just got a, you know, an, an entertaining or a goofy personality, you can, you can make, you know, captivate people in that way. I think there's, there's elements where I can kind of, I can turn my personality up to have some of those parts to it, but kind of at my core, I'm a teacher. Like at any point, even throughout my professional career, whenever somebody would ask, like, if you weren't playing football, if you weren't pursuing football, what, what would you be doing instead? It always came back to being a teacher. Like I like imparting knowledge to people. And so I think in all these other elements, even from the time where, where you're younger, when you're trying to get someone to explain your point of view, some people approach that in a way of just saying, here's what I think. And I think other people can approach that in a way of truly wanting you to understand why this is how something goes. And I think Bo, Bo and I are both similar in that vein where I think we're both wired in that way of teaching people something and have always been that to some extent and, and wanting, to under, wanting people to understand things. And uh, I, I think that's probably why there's a certain there is an element of, of like a parallel to the way we can kind of break the game down in a way that, that has a broadness to it that folks can understand. What I love about it is I've been at the score since 1998 and I've done a bunch of different jobs. I've been a producer. I loved being a beat reporter. I learned a lot covering a team every day and sometimes getting into verbal and occasionally physical altercations <laughs> with football players. Um, I learned a lot. Occasionally physical. <laughs> I, I, there's a whole story. I'll, I'll tell you sometime when we're not on talking about you, where I had to be carried out of the Bears locker room by, oh, by a friendly Bears player that saw All that right. I was about to get my ass whooped. And they were like, let me just remove, like literally picked me up. And walked me out of the locker room because I was on one that day. Anyway, I love doing that, and I love doing shows. And I've noticed, I would say, I would say over the last decade, fans have really embraced the non-meatball aspect of football. Like, it's still there. Like, people love to, to be angry and love the physicality of the game. A lot of fans are interested in the why now. Like, why is this happening? How, how did this change? Like, all of these things. 
and I love it. Like I remember we did the segment with Bowen and 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 I was doing kind of a complicated football thing. And at the time I was working as a reporter. So I knew a lot more than what I did when I was just a producer. And we'd have these deep conversations. I remember folks saying it's never gonna work. People don't <laughs> want it that way. And I'm like, mm, there's a there's something out there. And he he touched a nerve with Bears fans. And they they started to be like, this is the shit that I've been waiting for, like to learn the game on a granular level. And I think that you do it similarly when you're explaining the the way that football is coached and different ways that we can perceive what's happening where it's not just that guy scored a touchdown because he burned that corner. Well, Mm. what defense were they in? What was the responsibility of the defensive back? What was the responsibility of the pass rush to get there? What was the route combination? Like, you're doing all of that stuff for people now, and I think that it's made for a more robust conversation about football. Why do you think that fans have gotten to that place where they want to know more? There's, there's so much that's available out there now, content-wise, and I think the the attention span of the viewer, and this is something you can have a granular discussion just about the attention span of consumers and everything like that, but you know, simply the attention span is far more divided than it ever has been because so much content is available. And I do think that, you know, specifically with, with a sport like football, that's obviously my, my main moneymaker and always has been, but I think that the understanding of the sport is is at just from the general consumer, from civilians, as I call them, is at as high level or higher level than it ever has been between the way it's watched and the variety of ways that you can look for breakdowns and find breakdowns on the game. And of course, the video game industry, which I'm not, I haven't been much of a gamer since Madden 93, but I do know that that they get into such detail on the games and the schematics there that folks you know, can kind of understand the schematics of the game more so than they ever have when all you had to do on Madden 93 was just hurdle over and over again if you were running back and everything was all good. Or on Tech Mobile, you get Bo Jackson and you got six plays and you can just dominate. But it's different now the way all those things play out. And so I think it's a more educated uh, consumer base for football than there ever has been. So with that, folks might be looking for a very specific type of thing, but at its core, folks are looking for more knowledge. They're trying to figure out how can I learn more about my team? How can I understand more about the game? And I think that's that's not just football. That's not just the sports consumer. I think we see that play out in so many other areas of life where so much is available 24-7. And so folks want to get a deeper understanding than I think we've probably ever pursued before just societally. And so with football, the the willingness to go into some granular detail on certain things and that folks are are willing to hear that out, willing to pick it up. Like I, I think it's it's part of why, like even my my opinions on Mitch Trubisky early on in his Bears career were unique and were standing out where the simple thing was to look at him playing poorly and just focus on, all right, the Bears got a busted quarterback. And for me, like from jump, as soon as Matt Nagy came in, even while they were winning the division title, my thing was it, it's more than Mitch and using the hashtag more than Mitch and just trying to explain to people, yes, he's struggling, but here are some ways that they can put him in more advantageous situations. Here are some ways that they can try to call the game to his skill set 
with quarterbacks who have similar or even less skill than him who are finding ways to have success or in some cases even thrive that the Bears aren't even attempting to consistently put him in these spots. And so, yes, he's got to be better, but here's how the team in some ways is failing him and how Matt Nagy as a play caller isn't allowing him the best opportunities for success. And they're still, you know, you hear takes around town or takes nationally about Mitch that are still like, ah, oh, I don't want to hear all this other stuff. Guys are bust and blah, blah, blah. Let's keep it moving. That may work for you and you are allowed your opinion on that. And you might not even be wrong, but here's why it could be better than what happened in Chicago. And trying to get to that why is to me what's, what is sort of the core of essentially, and this is actually with the variety of networks that I've worked with over the years, probably the main network who I've done like a wide degree of content with, who is always hammering the point home to their announcers to get to the why of a subject is NBC. Like NBC is the network that has given me the most feedback over the years. NBC is the network that gives all their announcers the most feedback that they would ever hope to hear. And a lot of it essentially comes back to like, you see it play out on Sunday Night Football, you see it play out on their Notre Dame broadcast, see it play out in all their Olympic coverage. They have folks, they want their announcers, even the analysts to be storytellers, and they want folks to get to the why of the matter. And that, that just suits me and kind of my sensibility anyway. And I think NBC really helped me you know, sort of adjust and, and recognize the importance of that. And it, it comes out in a lot of ways that I try to communicate the game with people at this point. We joke when you're on the show about, you know, you having a hundred jobs all the time. <laughs> we we joke that you're the skit from a living color with right. a, the family from the West Indies. That, hey, man, time to go How to work. Job you got, man. Right. Yeah. Like we joke with that, but I was really, really thinking about it. You do prep, college pro you do local regional national how the hell do you keep everything straight man one thing that that i cannot discuss this subject with, with without showing some love to my wife because she especially during the football season holds me down in that regard as far as just a a willingness to handle so many other things in our world that like, yeah, maybe I can kind of swoop in late and help make a key decision or whatever. But like, you know, I, I have to be on point for so many different areas of the industry and so many different parts of my brain that have to be firing at all times, especially during the football season, but even this part of the year between radio and TV and multiple networks and all that kind of thing. But, you know, it's, I, I've been really fortunate that that folks have consistently been willing to give me or to present a variety of opportunities to me. But then at the same time, my, my mentality that I've always tried to attack this with is to, to pursue as many different types of opportunity as possible as well. Like for me, whether it was, I got to describe some of the ways that, you know, maybe my playing career, like if this was a little different, maybe my playing career could have thrived even more. And I'd still feel like that a lot with my with my media career, with my broadcast career also, where I'm always trying to figure out like what what can be tweaked or what other thing could I maybe be, be able to pursue that I feel like I could handle at a high level. And I've never been a big sleeper. So when, you know, when there's opportunities out there and especially, you know, when, when I'm in my busiest times of the year, I know I'm not going to sleep well if I don't kind of do that last thing that's kind of rattling through my brain. So I can't tell you how many times I'm laying it down. I'm thinking I'm shutting it down for the night. Get up, climb out of bed, go like do that other thing or two because I'm not going to sleep 
if I don't go do that, but I've always been wired to, to, to constantly pursue more and, and to think that, that I have the ability to like handle a lot. I think some of that, you know, goes back to what I was talking about, even as a kid and just having to, to learn how to navigate different environments and, and different people and different ways of communicating. And I think that just plays out today in my, my ability to, to sort of constantly maneuver in, in different areas of this industry. And early on, like if it was there and I had a chance at it, I tried it and a lot of it went well. And so at this point, as long as a lot of it continues to go well, then I just, I like to pursue new things. And I, I don't like wasting opportunities, whether that's I'm on the road and I'd rather eat at some restaurant I've never heard of because I don't want to waste a meal when I'm out there in some new life experience or if that's in the industry and somebody says, you know what? Hey, do you, do you think you could you know, be the host as opposed to the analyst in studio at the Pac-12 Network? Yeah, I'll, I'll be the one bringing us back from breaks and, and reading the, the sponsor reads or, hey, do you think you can go out and like, you know, do these on-field demos and interact with the fans here? That, yeah, let, let's make it happen. Or do you, all right, do you think you can go solo on the radio or, you know, just wh whatever it may be. Do you, all right, you got a, an, a concept you want to pitch for a food show? All right, let's pitch that. Let's see if we can sell that somewhere else. That's, that's been how I've tried to attack things my, my entire time in this gig. And I suppose a lot of people probably want to attack things that way. There's some things I've tried that have gotten off the ground and some things that haven't gone as well. But I don't know if it's because of my, frankly, just the abundant confidence I have in myself and being able to pull something off. But, you know, even my, my misses, like if I swing and miss on something or whatever, like it doesn't, it doesn't really phase me that much because I'm, I'm fairly confident that one, I'm definitely not the only one who failed at this before, but two, I'm going to swing at something else that's probably going to hit. And, you know, I just, I, I, I continue to come back to that, that I'm abundantly confident that as long as I put the work in, I, I have been blessed with the skills to succeed. And that has been, has been something that's, you know, hadn't necessarily failed me yet up to this point. At this point in your career, how big a deal is travel to you? Cause I mean, I know that you're in a lot of cases going back to some of the same cities but mm -hmm. I, I look at the itinerary for you like throughout the year and I go, mm. man, that's pretty cool to be able to 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 go to to down down to New Orleans, to go out west, to, to go to the farm at Stanford and call a game. So do you is that a plus for you? Like if all of these things were available for you and you didn't have to travel, would it mean as much as it does with you having the ability to travel? The, the travel portion of the job, especially during the college football season, I still don't mind it, but it feels different now than it used to. Like when I first started at the Big Ten Network back in 08, like that first spring, like the Big Ten Network went through, I think the first fall was the fall of 07, and then you got into that following spring of 2008, where I got like my first on-air audition with the Big Ten Network, and then the, the following fall of 2008, my first like full package of games I'd ever done. I'd never been in the broadcast booth before that point. I'd done, you know, some sidelines for some high school in Nashville before then. And then when it's like, you know, and at that point I'm living in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm coaching arena football during the spring and summer down in Huntsville and then flying up to Big Ten country during the fall and winter months, you know, flying from Huntsville to, uh, to Charlotte to you know, wherever I was flying into to be near State College and then driving to State, like Pittsburgh and then State College or whatever it was. And so it would take two and three flights 
I do that. And then after B10 was pretty pleased with that. Then eventually I'm doing a studio show during the week as well. So I'm making my way on the weekends from Huntsville, several flights to a game, and then back to Huntsville. And then Huntsville, multiple flights up to Chicago during the week for a studio show, and then going back home for a night, and then leaving on the weekends again. And frankly, and especially the amount of Iowa games I got to call during that point, it was awesome. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily have like this longstanding dream to be on television or radio and to work in broadcasting. But at a certain point, after you know my run in the NFL and my run in arena football, and then starting to coach, and I was trying to figure out like, do I do I want to coach long term? I know I like to teach, but is that the lifestyle I'm looking for? Or it was actually I just sort of fell into the TV industry because my arena football coach was was the analyst for the high school football games with the Comcast affiliate in Nashville. And he said, you know what, they're, they're looking for another another person, you should come out and audition. I just went and checked it out because I had to stay there because I was covering from recovering from multiple knee surgeries. And I went and checked it out. And then they had me start doing some high school football games. And that was really the first thought I ever gave to working in television or, or the media in general at all. And then the Big Ten Network started up and my playing career was over. And I was done having surgeries from head to toe at 28 years old. And my wife pushed me around in wheelchairs every other year. I said, like, all right, let's figure out the next thing, the next move. And so that move led me down the, the path of broadcasting and coaching. So, you know, there wasn't necessarily an off season for me as a coach. It was the, the actual season was during the spring and summer months. But then in the off season, I'm still hosting camps to try to recruit people to come and play with the Tennessee Valley Vipers and evaluating talent on film playing like small college football and could that be somebody who could come can they handle playing both ways because arena football you got to be offensive lineman and defensive lineman and all that but still flying up to big 10 country from huntsville every week and then flying to the studios in chicago and that was that was a lot of fun like i didn't i didn't mind it in my late 20s and early 30s flying that much and, and being you know at that point me and my wife had already been together a long time and you know she she saw i was pursuing that and looking for that next phase of my life after football. So, you know, I didn't love being away from her that much, but it's different now with a kid where now that we've got the toddler, now that we got Bishop, yeah, like as opposed to, all right, the game is over Saturday and you know what? I'm going to just relax and stay overnight and fly back on Sunday. Now between, you know, on FaceTime with Bishop and he's asking for daddy to come home. And frankly, I got the Bears duties on Sunday. And so life is different now than it was then. So the thrill of all the flying and the traveling and the various stadiums, it's still manageable. I still don't mind it. But like a decade ago, it was awesome. And I, yeah, you know, like it was great to go on the road and be in hotels and different stadiums here and there, being on TV, that red light comes on and the thrill of that. So a lot of it is still thrilling, but specifically the travel end of it that you're asking about, it, it feels different now because it, it feels like it's it's taking away from more things here at home. And especially with the amount of things that I have going in the city here that I need to rush back for, that actually, that's become a really big factor in, in what college opportunities I'm comfortable pursuing. Because with the years that I was fortunate enough where the Pac-12 had me as their main football analyst for Pac-12 Network, I... I got to leave on Thursday. And a lot of times I can't get home until Sunday with those games. So it's, it's difficult to do that and still manage all the things that I have here between family and work. I wonder if I ask you this question in a year, if it's a different answer, because traveling over the last 15 months has been a nightmare. 
Mm. And and now, like when we get into the next college football season, it's going to feel more familiar than what we've experienced over the last 50 months. So I'll put a pin on that for when you return to, to, to House of L. I want to ask you one more thing, and I appreciate you being generous with your time. I didn't know until we talked about you calling the classic that you had finished your degree at an HBCU. Was that on purpose? That you finished your degree at an HBCU? It was available in Nashville where we were living at the time. We, I was I played arena football in the city for a couple of years, and I knew I wanted to finish my degree somewhere at some point, sometime. I just I didn't know when I would basically force myself to get around to it because I popped around to a few different majors during my time in college. Also, you know, like I started off initially, I was business major and then I went to being a psych major because like those big lectures I'm talking about where I like got the sunglasses on and the newspaper up like those were psych so I mean when we got to some of the smaller settings for psych classes like okay I can do this but the big lectures they didn't necessarily you know kind of grasp grasp my attention in the way that that I needed them to so then eventually I moved on from psych and became an English major towards the end because I loved reading and writing I was good at it and all those things. So I stuck with that. So I had plenty of credits, but I hadn't actually finished any of those degrees by the time I left Iowa. And because I was, you know, played as a true freshman. And so like by the end of my senior season, there was still at least a semester of classes to finish, but then I'm trying to get ready for the draft and, you know, training for the combine and all those things going to all-star games. So, you know, I, I took kind of a diminished class load. So I still had two classes I needed to finish uh, for my English degree. So, I knew at some point those two classes loomed and I was going to do it. And Iowa, like their, their academic athletic administrators, a guy named Fred Mims, who played baseball at Iowa, you know, decades before I was an athlete there. So he was a black guy in the state of Iowa, even at that point where while I was in Iowa, it was what, 95% white or whatever. When Fred was there, I mean, I don't know how much more white Iowa could have been, but for him, you know, he knew what, what that journey was like to be you know, just a black athlete in general, and especially a black athlete in a state like Iowa, where you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And so Fred was always a great resource for so many different things for, for just, you know, student athletes in general, but especially for black student athletes at Iowa. And that's what, what a lot of us communicated back to the program, even with some of the strife that was there this past off season was, you know what, that there needs to be attention paid to that, to having some sort of Fred Mims type figure that black athletes at Iowa, especially like black football players even specifically, can feel like they can go to, can communicate with during their playing careers and then frankly beyond their playing careers as well. And so Fred was a guy I hit up after my career was over. I had those two classes to finish and I hit up Fred and you know, we've stayed in touch over the years. So I got these two classes left to finish. Like, can you help me figure out how to make that happen? And he, he's the one that alerted me to it. Like, yeah, within, you know, finishing up your English major and the courses that it seems you need, you got HBCU right there in town. You go to Tennessee State and finish that up. I said, oh, that's awesome. I would love to do that. And so it wasn't immediately at the forefront of my mind, but just through conversations with Fred about what I needed and what was available there uh, for, at TSU right there where I was living. I was like, okay, that is perfect. I don't need to go back to Iowa City. The university was still willing to pay 
for me to finish up my degree, which they didn't have to, which I really hope at some point becomes the standard across the board for college athletes that, that institutions will, will guarantee, you know, a certain period of time where they'll still pay for athletes to come back and finish their degrees. And, but Fred and I were willing to do that for me. And, uh, you know, and it's you know, not that I couldn't have afforded the classes at that point or whatever, but it was a great gesture on their part to, to be willing to do that. And so, yeah, the HBCU part of it, just having that experience was something that it wasn't at the forefront of, of my thought for why I ended up picking TCU or uh, TSU, but because it was there and available, it was like, yeah, that, that's going to be a cool experience. So I definitely pursued it. And, it. and it ended up being a cool experience for you? It was. It was. Now, there were elements that I just felt like a fish out of water because I'd been out of school for a number of years by the time I did it. So I'm showing up with a spiral notebook and a pen and paper and everybody else has their laptops out and tablets and, you know, they're recording the teacher during class and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, I'm still scribbling away like some dinosaur, you know, trying to get my education that way. So, I mean, that part was different, but just like the environment on campus, just the, the vibe there, like you're still in the city of Nashville, but it's an HBCU uh, there within the Nashville area. And so, I mean, you know, Tennessee State, is just, it's, a, it's a cool school. It's a fun school. It's not you know, it's, it's probably not quite as quite as as jovial of an atmosphere as some of the other HBCUs like, you know, that I've experienced, like going to to Grambling or Southern or especially calling the Bayou Classic and everything. But but TSU was a was a really cool spot just to get to finish my scholastic experience, because I like I don't you continue to pursue other degrees. I have no interest in getting any other degrees or anything, but it was a really nice and fulfilling way to kind of finish up what I plan on having being the last two classes I ever take in my life. I have capped myself at I'm not going to become a doctor. Like I'm not going to. Are you sure though? I am. Are you sure? I'm I'm pretty. All right. So I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to do that. There are other individual like schools of study that I want to learn about. Instead of like concentrating on like becoming a doctor of communications or whatever, okay. and, and, and it's so funny because I I've talked with people on the teaching end of it, and I've asked them because I I eventually see myself when the industry is done with me or I'm done with it, I'm mm-hmm. in a classroom somewhere, mm-hmm. which I like. I like. Well, you already do quite a bit, right? Yeah, I I like that, but I I've talked to people, and, and I, I I could go get the PhD. But a friend of mine was like, well, then you're just going to start. You're not going to improve where you start by getting the Ph.D. You're already a scholar practitioner of some repute. So why would you then turn yourself into a Ph.D. so you could go to the bottom of the (laughs) academic standings, whereas right now you can be like a star lecturer and you already have the actual practical experience instead of just the academic. So I kind of, I was like, you know what? And this, this is someone who is a medical doctor and a PhD. Okay. And he's like, okay. he's like, there's no reason for you to do it. Like none. He's like, don't I mean, put really, your... The only reason is so people can call you doctor. Right. If you want to hear people call you Dr. Holmes. Which people kind of already, like I'm already <laughs> Professor Holmes and people who don't like, like know that I, I'm, I don't have a PhD. Some of them already call me that. And I never understood that why that, ha- why that happened to my father. My father is what's called an ABD, all but dissertation. He's done mm-hmm. everything up to the dissertation. And people will refer to him as Dr. Holmes. And he's like, okay, like, whatever. Like, it's, no, <laughs> it's no big deal to him because he's got a lot of the bona fides. It's just, 
it's funny. Like, like that whole academic, like I'm, I'm trying to learn how to navigate that, but I think that I want to jump. So, so I think that at the end of this, I might be one of those people who has five master's degrees. <laughs> but no Instead PhD. of two masters and one doctorate. Right, like that. right. I might be one of those people like, wait a minute, you have a you have a master's in mathematics? Like, yeah, you know, I just figured I'd take a year off and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go down to Duke and go become a, a guy that has a master in mathematics. I don't even know if they have a mathematics master, but you, you get what I'm saying. I appreciate this so much. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you, man. No problem at all. Thanks for letting me be long-winded. I guess that's what podcasts are for. Yeah, we're supposed <laughs> to be able to talk on podcasts, and and we did just that. So, thanks, my man. We are we are done. I I know I've ate, eaten up way too much of your afternoon. I know Bishop's probably like running around right now. <laughs> no, he's actually he's napping right now. But yeah, he's about to be up in a few minutes. It's almost time to wake him up. So this times up really well. All right. Well, good luck with that. And uh, <laughs> I, I will. This will probably air in a couple of weeks. All right. Cool. All right, man. Be well. All right, Lo. Appreciate you, man. All right, man. Later. So there you have it. I mean, there's more that we could have done to tell you the truth. And Anthony strikes me as the type of person that will make a return visit to House of L. We didn't even talk about, like, acting. Like, he's done that, too. Like, there's a lot in, in, in his quiver. And he continues to, to make up ground. Like, he's doing really well on the broadcasting side. Like, whatever it is. And he's branching out, whether it's baseball or basketball. It's not. One thing I've learned about athletes and working with them over the last 15 years, very coachable. You can explain stuff to people, and they get it, and they they figure it out. And Anthony's been doing a lot of that from observing standpoint, like observation stuff, where he's watching us. But he asks a lot of questions about how to do the job, and then he tailors it to what it is that he does. And it's worked out really well for him, and I think it's good for score listeners as well. Like, I think he's a he's tremendous. Like, I can't say enough. Like, he's really tremendous at what he does, and he's been a, a great addition to what we do at The Score. He's been a great addition to the folks over at Fox, NBC, Big Ten. How many jobs you got, man? How many jobs you got, man? That's what we always joke about with him. But I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. I know you did. Like, there wasn't a reason for you not to. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And what I hope is that you'll check out some of the past episodes. I really love the way that you responded to the Lynn Casper episode. People, like, I'm looking at the numbers on it. It's a really good week of downloads of that episode. So thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you checking it out. And, I, and thanks to Lynn for what I thought was a great episode. As I said in the intro, if you like the Anthony Heron episode then go back and listen to the Matt Bowen one it was right around Super Bowl week scroll through the thing about House of L that I like is that this archive that we have it allows for you to kind of just scroll through and you can say oh okay I missed the episode with Sarah Gendra like that's a cool episode I missed that. I got some people on my hit list that are coming up 
you know, I want to get onto the podcast. But Anthony was definitely one of them, and we had a wonderful talk. And like I said, the Lynn one was good, too. You scroll all the way through. The whole three years that I've been doing this podcast is available to you. No charge. Free. Here's what I would like, though. Would you go and give this five stars, wherever it is that you download podcasts, give this five stars. Give House of L five stars. Give Sports Adjacent five stars, too. Soon they'll be all out on their own. They haven't heard this part yet. But I'll tell you, soon they'll be out on their own. So it would be nice if they had a, a good base of people that were subscribing. Like, they have their own feed. They're on House of L, but they also have the Sports Adjacent feed. And so you can subscribe there for when they're on their own. And show them some love. Five stars all around. That's the way I think. Because to me, if it's one star, then you're not going to listen ever again. So why even give it a star? Give it five stars. That's the way to go. There's no middle ground. Either you hate it and you're never going to listen again, or it's five stars all day long. High five. I appreciate your support. I truly do for this stupid thing that I do. I'm going to have to do a whole podcast at some point on playing softball. Maybe I'll put it out after I put out the the next episode. I got to do something. I got to talk about it. It's weird. All the things I've been through since we I started playing again. It's very strange. And maybe you can relate. I'll share next time. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Team Hockberg. If you're looking to buy a home or refinance your home, David Hockberg is the dude. I'm telling you. And tell him that you found out about him from the House of L podcast. 56david.com. 855-56-DAVID if you want to call him. Homeside Financials and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS number 1124061. Yeah, I'm going to do a whole episode on playing softball again and being old. Yeah, that's going to happen. I'll talk to you next time. Hey!